So, Jeff, we normally record our shows on Wednesdays. Yes, Rick, I, I know that. So why do you bring this up now? Well, I was thinking about how we get really wacky on Wednesdays. Ah, okay. I see. More alliterations. We like those. But again, why are you bringing this up now? Well, I just think that I should have moved this recording to accommodate our guest, Hilary Barda. We should have done this on a Tuesday. Okay, but once again, why? Because I love the Scurry Tuesdays, of course. Welcome, dear listener, to our podcast, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer. Analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures and absorbing alcohol. I am Jeff. And I am Rick. And welcome to our very special guest, Hilary Barta. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Why, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> No, it really is. It is fantastic to have you here. Seen your name in many a comic book. Very excited to get the chance to talk to you and especially talk about that old power pack connection. Hear about that and everything. But we got a lot of stuff to go through. So, Rick, do you want to introduce him or Hillary, would you like to introduce yourself? How's this working? I don't know anymore. You've completely taken me off any kind of script I have. But to repeat exactly what Jeff said, thank you so much for this. This is really an honor. Uh, We've had some amazing interviews that we've had on our show. And you're just another one of those great names that we've seen. And (laughs) we are able to, we're able to, to, you know, it is really hard. Uh, This is an audio medium. And I'm sitting here looking at... At Jeff, who I'm pretty used to ignoring, but I'm looking at my guest here, and my guest is doing some some things that are just making me go, hmm, <laughs> hmm, hmm, something's not right. Something's not right with this man. <laughs> He's just showing that he hasn't been coerced at all. Not at coerced gunpoint. at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> that. That's perfectly fine. That's fun. Um, I, I was the kid making cracking jokes in class, you know, so that, that's me. That's I think a- we were all that kid. <laughs> visual gags work great on audio podcasts yeah. they really do we have we have done what it's going to be our 89th episode so we've done 89 episodes and we still can't quite seem to crack that nut of how to do a good pratfall on an audio medium process i mean we've tried our best but it just doesn't quite work you need the old sound effects guys from the old radio shows you know where they mm-hmm. do the thunder and the break the steps, with, you know, with the shoes and See, all that stuff. And, and we don't have that kind of money. The kind of money that we have is having my 10-year-old daughter come on and do the sound effects from the comic book issue. That's that's about as much money as we got. So. <laughs> well, if you, know, if you need, I I can come up with a blomp or a goop or whatever you need. I, you know, I'll do my best. Sport. You know. I'm liking those. I, I like those too. I think I'm going to ask a few questions here that I think are going to really set the tone for exactly what we're talking about because I think I think as it's become very clear you enjoy the comedy no (laughs) yeah I I think yes I mean I started out as an inker but when I got into doing my own stuff I I just gravitated towards doing humor and slightly wackier off the the sort of superhero action adventure mainstream I guess yeah I do like the humor comedy well Let's start at the very beginning, if you don't mind. Where did you grow up at? Uh, well, I actually lived presently in Chicago about 
a mile or so east of where I was born. So I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> and um, I did move away. I've been in other places, but I somehow come, come, you know, come full circle or, or I've slowly returned step by step, apartment by apartment, move by move to near my birthplace. And so I'm really a Chicago native, though I grew up in Evanston, which is a suburb just to the north. Uh, but I've spent my whole life here. And what type of entertainments did you enjoy there in Chicago? Well, um, you know, comic books were a factor, though I was probably more into movies and television when I was younger. What comics I got, I got usually secondhand through my older brothers. You know, I wasn't really buying my old com- my own comics until a little bit later. I remember like uh, my dad on Sundays after church, we'd swing by the newsstand and my dad would give me uh, money to get him cigarettes and a paper. And then he's like, oh, and here's a quarter for you. And at that time, that could get you one of the giant size annuals. Uh-huh. And so I would pick up, you know, Fantastic Four annual or Thor or something, the 25 cent specials. And those are all like Jack Kirby, John Buscema, Stan Lee. They were fantastic comics. I, I, I don't think I've ever enjoyed comics more than those comics. You know, they, something about being a kid and reading your first comics, you know. But I love movies. And, and for me, uh, I, I really fell in love with black and white film, partly because we never had a color TV when I was growing up. So I thought everything was in black and white. I was, I was startled one year when I was in my 20s to find out that uh, The Wizard of Oz turned into a color film like 20 <laughs> minutes in. I didn't know that happened. <laughs> that was pretty mind-blowing for the yeah. time. That was really mind-blowing. I almost dropped the box I was carrying when I saw the transition. You know? I was like, what? what? So anyway, but I, I, I fell in love with old movies, and, and, and that black-and-white cinematography, I think, has influenced my, my own drawing quite a bit. You also, from what I've seen with other interviews you've done in, in your own bio, you have a little fascination for Mad Magazine as well. Well, I, Mad, to me, the greatest cartoonists that ever lived, I could, I could, I could, you know, list them on one hand. But Harvey Kurtzman would be on that list, and some of the people he worked with in the early Mads uh, were on that list. And my, you, you asked me what I did for entertainment when I was young. Mad was reprinted in paperbacks back then in the 60s. And I had these black and white paperback Valentine, I think, editions of Mad. They would cut up the book. It was all in black and white. The original comics were in color, you know, when Mad first came out. And and that's how I first saw those stories by Kurtzman and Wood, Severin, Elder, all those great artists, Jack Davis. I saw them in paperback form with the panels just rearranged to fit the paperback format. But it was the most amazing, hilarious artwork I'd ever seen. I remember growing up with the uh, Dave Berg paperback. I had, uh, I think it was Dave Berg uh, visits the United States or looks for the United States or something like that. I remember having that. I think I probably stole from my dad. But, yeah. I love Mad Magazine. Uh, I think I might have a couple of the collected uh, Spy versus Spies. I believe, if I remember correctly, the old memory starts getting fuzzy. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, re- I remember all those strips. Those strips came later when Mad became a Mad magazine as opposed to Mad the comic book, you know. And you guys probably know the comic history where the comics code came in and an EC Comics that published Mad as a comic book, as a, as a colored book. They, 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 they had to like kill almost all their comics. And then they made the transition into making it a magazine. And it just took off as a magazine. I mean, it became a cultural phenomenon, not just a good selling comic. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have Mad Magazine, you wouldn't have had Saturday Night Live. You wouldn't have a lot of the, uh, you know, you wouldn't have Airplane. You wouldn't have so many things that we take for granted in parody and humor now really were born. The underground comics uh, wouldn't have existed without EC and Mad. 
you know, Crum and all those guys, really, Matt was a huge influence on, on that generation and later generations as well. I'm a little bit, I'm kind of like a late baby at the end. I'm at the tail end of the baby boomer generation. But you also have also the rest of the parody that comes with it, the political satire, The Daily Show and Stephen Colbert and a few of those other things that, that then transitioned out of the 90s into the aughts. And yeah, all of it kind of builds off of each other and you can trace all, yeah, I think you were completely right, tracing it back into the pop culture essence that was Mad Magazine back in the day. I think I think Mad had a lot to do with that because Mad Mad attacked comic books. I mean, originally Mad. Um, I'm speaking of the early color issues. You know, they, they, there were a lot of comic book subject matter. They did other things. They did Sherlock Holmes, but they did all the big superheroes. They did Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel. And once you know, for me as a kid, reading the parody of Batman before I really read Batman, you know, Batboy and Rubin, like Harvey Kurtzman and Wally Wood. It was really hard to read Batman with a straight face and take it seriously, you know, because I'd already, I already, <laughs> I already read this hilarious parody, and oh my god, the the Superman, Superman and Captain Marvel fighting in Super <laughs> Duper Man is just one of the most brilliant, you know, comic book fight scenes ever, and it's just hilarious. Oh god. Anyway, yeah, no, kind of in those lines. It's always like the you know the difference between horror and comedy is almost, you know, razor thin kind of thing, depending on how it goes. So it's like that where you're going, oh, I just can't see Batman the same way because I've seen him parodied and played as a funny. And now I can see him. Oh, yeah, he's hiding the shadows. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> but you know, as you were saying, you know, it's like it's interesting to see how things get their start. And from what we've read, uh, it seems like you started off by hanging around Chicago Comic Cons. Uh, can you talk about that experience? Well, yeah, I mean, Chicago Comic Con might have been unique in this regard. I don't know, but. I never had to pay for a table in all the years I was going as a fan artist. And then later as a pro, you know, they, they welcomed all artists. And the assumption was that we were drawing people to the show. You know, I mean, I'm sure I wasn't drawing many people when I was a fan, but we were still given a table and they didn't charge us. So it was kind of incredible that I'm sitting here, maybe I'm outside the main hall, but I'm, I have a table in the same space where inside the main hall, Maybe Gil Kane is there. You know, maybe maybe Joe Kubert is sitting at a table. It, 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 it just, you know, it probably puffed up my ego a little too much at, at times. But you just, it just sort, you sort of felt like you were part of that, right? And, you know, and then over the years, I started getting work, and eventually I'm a professional. And, and, and it, I don't know, I always thought that was a remarkable show. And in later years, when mini-comics and self-published magazines and all that stuff started happening... Those guys got their tables too. It wasn't until Wizard took over Chicago, you know, they bought the original owners, the creators out, that that they started charging for tables and and people started going, well, gee, am I going to make enough money? And it became it became an economic thing. Cons were just fun back in those days. It really was fun. As you were sitting there doing your drawings, what kind of experience did you get from that? I mean, you had opportunities to kind of sit around people and interact with them, but did you also get to sell some of your work and did you get to really kind of improve your craft as it were at that time? Well, I mean, I believe me, I was trying to sell work. I would do, I would do like little drawings, you know, I'd be trying to sell drawings for 10 or 15 bucks if I could, you know, I, I, I was doing whatever I could. And I was, I was doing ink work, you know, from the beginning, I was trying to do what, what looked like comic book work, even though I wasn't doing comics, I was doing just character illustrations. I drew a lot of monsters. I love monsters, you know, but I, you could also, I, at those shows, I could I remember leaning over and watching Rudy Nebrez inking 
And he's one of the most amazing inkers I've ever seen working. But just to just have that, you know, you, not too many people were actually sitting there inking with a brush at a convention. He was. And I was like, oh, my God. I could have stood there all day, you know, if, if there weren't other people that wanted to get to the table. <laughs> it's just like, this is a tutorial right here. This is all the school I'll ever need. Let me see how this guy does this, you know. I've seen these magical lines. Now I can see a guy making them, you know. It's pretty cool. I always thought, I always was jealous of all the artists I knew that either moved to New York or grew up around New York where they would just knock on the door of a company or a, a comic artist and maybe they could start out as a, you know, schlepper getting coffee for the guys or washing the brushes out or racing pages and then working their way up to be an assistant. I, to me, I learned by doing or watching, you know, school with comics. I never went to comic book school. There really wasn't a comic book school back then for me. You know, it would, I think it would have sped up that learning curve quite a bit. You've mentioned it a couple of times and I think we should take a moment because we know you on the power pack side as the inker as an inker on the comic books. And we've talked about it because we've, we, we, every issue we read off the credits. Of the, we want to give the honor to the people who created this book, you know, every single part of it, but we are the wrong persons to really tell or describe what an inker is. Now that we've got you on the show, you can possibly tell us what does an inker do? What is, what is that job? Well, I, you know, it's an interesting job because it really depends because inking is a, uh, one of the true collaborations where you're working, two artists work together. And sometimes those artists never actually meet. Like I didn't, I don't, I don't know when I met John, but it was either after we'd worked together for a number of years or after we were done working together, but we met at San Diego one year. It, but for years, we were just guys who talked on the phone. His pages would arrive. These pencil pages would arrive in the mail or FedEx. Uh, it wasn't probably FedEx back then. It probably was the U.S. Post Office. It, the collaboration is sort of a give and take between one artist and another. And, and as an inker, typically working with a professional penciler, my job I always saw was to try to figure out what that guy, what that penciler, what that man or woman would want to do. Because I'd having June Brigman on this book as well, right? Yeah. But, you know, I figure out what they were doing and try to try to carry that through, try to finish that. And I wasn't, I didn't try to change the work unless, you know, every once in a while in my career, I'd get people that needed help. But most professional pencils don't need help. They just, you just want to finish what they're doing. You want to, you know, uh, render that in what they've done in pencil and ink and try not to screw it up. With John's work, it really was so beautiful. I'd be just, I, you know, I had a roommate, you know, roommates that were also working in comics and they would be, we'd all pour over the pages and ooh and ah over every single panel. And I, John's pencils were some of the prettiest I've ever seen. It, his drawings of the kids were just like perfect in capturing both a level of realism and then cartooniness at the same time, right? They were, they were believable as children of that age. They weren't totally, you know, it wasn't, this isn't like, you know, uh, Nancy style cartooning, but, but then they were expressive in a cartoony way that, that they just gave them life that you wouldn't have if they were, strictly you know, realistic. So with doing this then, and especially when you don't get to really meet the person, how do you, as the anchor, as the finisher, really try to emphasize their work or emphasize their vision when you may not really have a close understanding or, or unless you've never actually met them? How, how do you capture that? Well, I mean, sometimes you don't fit together terribly well. I mean, it really is a matter of meshing two styles 
because you don't draw the same, right? It's a mix. And John and I, I felt, you know, I, I was just trying to add a little weight to the lines. I was using a brush by then. I started out, I was a pen inker and I was pretty bad the first couple of years I was inking. But by the time I was inking John, I had a little more control over the brush and the dynamics of the tools. So it, 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 with his case, the drawing was very exact and very fine. I mean, he was, a, he's really, you know, his drawings, he would mostly concentrate on faces, hands, that kind of thing. Sometimes the figures could be very simple. He often did very realistic photo reference backgrounds of New York apartment buildings and cityscapes, that kind of thing. There's very little for me to sort of create. You're more like, you're, it's more like you're executing. If there's a building and it's fading out, you sort of go, well, do I want to crosshatch that or do I want to do that in another way, fading it out? But John put most of that in the pencils. He seldom threw stuff to me and said, oh, you figure it out. He really did finish the pencils. And I was just trying to, you know, you want to add a little line weight. You want to do certain things that might not be exactly there in the pencil. But I wanted to try to capture that expressive cartooniness that I described. That, that was the essence. That's really what I loved about his work is just all the little, I'm gesturing with my hands while I'm talking. Because I can just picture the way he drew the expressive. You know, the children were all, would all talk with their hands the way we do as humans. And, and John did that as, uh, and does that as well as anyone. I always, have, and I have to admit this, anytime I saw a Barta Bog combined on a page, it always made me smile. I was always very happy. Aww. So covers and things, literally, every time I saw it, I was just like, yeah, I like that. I like them. So, so glad to see that. Well, I thank you. And, you know, I, I got to say, I, I feel the same way. And I, and I don't mean like, I couldn't say that about every pencil I ever work with, really. It really was a special <laughs> And I, I was, I, you know, I just love doing it, and I, I would have done it forever. I, you know, I, why did we stop doing it? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, reasons, but you know, you, you have, you know, other than like John, you have worked with some really big names on some really big books, like John Byrne on The Thing, Howard Chackin's American Flag, Rob Liefeld on New Mutants, and these are all really different styles that these artists bring to the table. So, uh, how do you work within those styles? Well, I mean, Ron Wilson, that was actually the first regular book I did. I'd done a couple. I did like a full issue of, and a story and a few pages for Marvel. When I broke in, I broke in at Marvel. Somehow I started at Marvel, which is crazy. I showed at this, at the Chicago convention we're talking about, I showed my pages to Al Milgram and he's like, well, you don't have many comic pages in here, but your inking's not bad. So maybe I'll give you a, a you know, chance to ink. So it took me a couple of years to, to really go beyond doing a couple pages. You know, I did two pages on uh, what was it? The defenders and they were terrible. And, so, you know, it took months for me to get my next two pages. But eventually they, they offered me the thing as a book. And that was, Byrne was the writer. I never got to ink John Byrne. Ron Wilson was a penciler. And he had a sort of a old-fashioned, I thought, kind of Kirby-influenced, 1960s-influenced Marvel style. And it was kind of fun. It really looked like comic books. But I was still learning. And that was a, that was a book I learned a lot on. I, I, I was still inking with a pen. It was, it was, for some reason, I was afraid to use a brush. By the time I got the bog and, and I worked with some of the other people, uh, like American Flag, I was thinking Joe Staten. You t to me, it's always, I re every job's different. You open it up, what that guy, the style of that guy, it's like, what, what's, what's appropriate for that guy? And uh, like on American Flag, when I inked that book, I was trying to add a little bit of grit to it. So I know I did a lot of cross-hatching in the backgrounds, Maybe because Joe is a little more cartoony than Howard. And I know that first really was a little afraid of the reception of the book. 
and you know, having a new artist take over. And uh, so I was trying to add a little grit, but I remember Howard telling me years later when we talked at a show, he said, you were probably the worst choice for Inker because we needed somebody to push Joe into the more realistic or gritty or whatever, but soften the cartooniness of it or don't, you know, not emphasize that. And of course I would, I completely embraced Joe's cartooniness because that's really who I am. So Howard uh, yeah, was just like, yeah, you weren't the right choice. <laughs> that must be so flattering to hear. <laughs> no, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't personal, purely yeah, professional yeah. observation and, and well after the fact. And we were having a pleasant conversation about mystery writers and other things. And, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, we, we made the bad choice there. <laughs> it wasn't blaming me. You know? But, you know, I, I, at the same time, and on, on, on American Flag, I ain't backups. I ain't Norm Brayfogle, the late Norm Brayfogle, on Bob Violence backups. I think they were written by Alan Moore. Some of them were written by Alan Moore, some of his early American work. And, you know, that was a totally different style. I mean, you really have to adapt to the thing you're given. I, I seldom kind of throw my style on top of pencilers. Sometimes I've had pencilers that needed something and you kind of go, yeah, I can add lighting to this. This is, I, I feel like there's license here. Like I, you know, but typically I just, I just want to help that penciler achieve his vision. You know, that's really what I want to do. I want to apologize because I was the one who wrote down that question. I was getting a little ahead of myself, a little faster. And I, I put the writers instead of the artist, and I feel bad about that. Um, <laughs> so when I wrote down that question, I also realized, too, that I have good trade paperback of the things that you were the anchor on. And I actually met and was able to get Ron Wilson to sign it. So oh, you know, I don't think I've ever read I've never met Ron, so if you see him again, say hi. <laughs> I would be more than happy to. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I saw him sitting at the Washington Summer, Washington Comic Con a couple years ago, and when he was just sitting there, nobody was talking to him. Went and talked to him for a little bit. I was like, I didn't bring anything for him to sign. Went around, picked this up at the con. It's like, yes, I will buy that for five bucks, not a problem at all. Went over the table, like, can you please sign this? <laughs> so. You couldn't, you couldn't find kickboxers or something? <laughs> you know, I probably could have if I looked harder, but I, I, I walked by the table, was staring right up at me. I'm like, man, there's a missed opportunity if nobody picks that up. So you have been a penciler, an inker, and a writer. Which of those gives you the most pleasure to do? Well, I, I, I do love them all. I think, I think I got into inking, frankly, because I wasn't ready to do the other two things. So it made sense. I was slow to the game of really learning the comics part of it, the storytelling <laughs> part of it. And, you know, the writing is the storytelling part of it, too. But I think, I think what happened for me is I, I was very, I was just happy to work in comics, like doing the thing. I was just like, I'm working on a Marvel comic. How crazy is that, you know? And that kept me pretty happy uh, for years. And at some point, I just started burning out out of that, right? There's just, you don't use all of your brain when you're inking you don't use it's more of a craft thing it certainly doesn't use the part of your brain where you're a storyteller because you're just purely visual purely line work you could spend your whole life inking and never learn how to draw some inkers are like the, the best inkers know how to draw but there are inkers that their own work was kind of like eh, you know because they didn't have to they were working with great artists and they knew how to add a sheen to it or a polish and and they could get away with that a lot of inkers are really talented artists and they just don't draw fast enough or they're happy being an inker. 
Um, they're so good that that's what the companies want them to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's changing now. I mean, in the present industry, what with digital drawing, a lot of our, you know, inking is slowly becoming less and less of a valued skill. But anyway, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would you, I, it sounds like you, you burnt out of inking, but being yeah. a penciler, being an inker, being a writer, I'm you've sorry, done what it all. Or, yeah, what's what your I favorite? I, I enjoy them all. I mean, honestly, inking is the easiest part for me. So like to actually draw the pencil page to come up with the idea that's that's kind of work. Sometimes things happen very quickly in penciling, but often it's the inking is like I'm done with the heavy lifting. Now I'm just having fun with the brush, and I'm just at this point I don't you know I'm I'm loosening up to the point. You know, I was afraid to use a brush. I mentioned on the thing at that stage. Now I'm just so relaxed. I almost too relaxed. You know, so yeah. um, it's a, it's great to get there. It only took me thirty years. You know. <laughs> Well, I think it's with any skill or any talent, you know, where it's just like, well, I know how to do it this way. Yeah, that's a great way. That's another way. But that's another way. That's new. I'm happy in my comfortable little little hut. Oh, sure. Right. And, and, and the funny thing was, I don't know how funny it is now, it's, uh, but it's, at the time, like my portfolio included brushwork and included all, I, I was doing illustration work and stuff. I did some very little, but I did a few science fiction illustrations and things like that before I got into comics. And I used brush. I used different tools. I used all kinds of techniques. But when I got an actual page of professional pencils, the first person I ever saw was Don Perlin. I, it was like I froze, you know. So it wasn't just that I got used to the pen, but I, I felt safer with it because the brush is a, like a wild man. You, you really can't press it against the paper. It's totally you have to relax and let it glide. It's a more difficult tool to master, but once you master it, you go, why was I spending all that time with the pen? Because I think I was trying to make the pen be a brush. I would, you know, trying to get it to be flexible and to do the tapered lines that you come naturally with a brush. And pens usually have a much more narrow kind of variation of width, whereas a brush, you can do one hair to a, a very thick line. You know, so it, 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 I was just afraid to do it professionally. Like, I don't want to screw this up kind of thing. And I remember Carl Potts was an editor that I worked with with for many years at Marvel and Carl once he kind of noticed my art seemed to be a little, my inking was a little stiff probably. And he said something like Hillary, you need to loosen up and tighten up. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Zen master. What the hell is that supposed <laughs> to mean? You know? And it took me a while, but I thought about it, but I realized what he was saying is, and it is kind of like this Eastern sort of Zen thing, but you need to learn the skills. You need to practice. You need to learn your craft. So that when you're actually working, you're not thinking about it. You're loose. You're spontaneous. You just, it happened. It really is the best way to make art. Because when you try too hard, if you're slow and precise, it looks like you're doing it that way, right? It doesn't have the feel that you want of the natural flow and the sort of spontaneous line. Okay, that's a lot of art talk. No, this is why we have you on here. I mean, we, this is great for us. I, I am not. I'm not an artist. <laughs> I don't, I, my drawings, my skill is not good at all. I'm trying to encourage my daughter to become more of an artist. I'm trying to hope she will pick up and continue on with her skills. She's good. I'd like her to see her continue. I, I want to give her advice like that if, if at all possible. I, but I wanted to go back and say, uh, Carl Potts, we spoke to him last week. We, we interviewed yep. him last week and, wow. and we talked to him for about three hours. He had wonderful things to say about you as well. And it seems like there's this great 
great group of people who you've had the pleasure of working with. I, I really, I, I've met some of my best friends in comics. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned the roommates. I, the first two roommates I had for many, many years when I worked in comics were comic book people. They were also, Brian Thomas was the first comic roommate I had. And he was, he was an inker like I was. I, he eventually, yeah, he did his own stuff too, but mostly he was an inker at that time. Working for Chicago companies, first comics and now comics. Um, there was another company that I'm going to forget. I don't know if that was Kamiko then or whatever. Anyway, there were other companies. And then Barry Crane, uh, who also worked, uh, did some stuff for Carl and, and uh, elsewhere. But then, you know, like, boy, there was a point when I, when I went out, to, I left Marvel and I, I, I started working at First Comics and I was uh, penciling a book for them. They, they like, Hillary, we want you to be a pencil. I'm like, what? <laughs> and they, I was totally unprepared for that. So I'm supposed to pencil and ink a book. Well, very quickly, I got behind schedule trying to do both. And I had to find an inker. They're like, well, you, you know, you could find one. We could get one for you. But if you really want to find your own inker, fine. And I ended up, you know, looking around the area. And, I, and there was a guy named Mark Nelson who has gone on to do great things. He did the first Aliens series at Dark Horse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark ended up being my inker. And he's like still one of my best friends to this day. He lived in DeKalb. I live in Chicago. And it's like eh, an hour and a half, maybe drive or an hour. So I'd, be, I'd go over there for a weekend and hang out and stare at him while he was thinking and driving crazy, you know. <laughs> He'll tell you, he almost punched me a couple times. Mark, <laughs> Mark was like Mr. Texture. I really loved just doing solid black. And Mark would Mark would break everything up into texture, and you know, cross-hatching or lines of some kind. And, and so he'd, he'd start just doing this, and he'd, then he'd just start doing what I would say. He'd add the cereal. He'd like put little specks of things around. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's perfect, Mark. And then he'd add one more mark. I'd say, no, stop. And he'd turn around and give me the look, you know, <laughs> the eyes of the, the, the stare of death, you know, like, like Bella Lugosi, you know, like looking around. <laughs> He's like, don't do that, Hillary. <laughs> you really probably shouldn't watch someone eat your work. It's kind of a weird <laughs> or, 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 or do a, do a running dialogue over it where you're like, good bad good bad it's like i need i need my own calm and my own flow i need my relax and tight please car there okay go sit in the corner hillary yeah (laughs) Yeah. here's a stack of comic books here's a quarter to go to the store (laughs) but yeah at some point yeah i was doing books that other people were into and i went to dc i did i penciled plastic man i I was one of the co-plotters on it but mostly i was the penciler and John Nyberg, they, they said, no, Hillary, we don't want you anchoring it. We're going to get you an anchor. It's going to be John Nyberg. And he did a great job. But it was just so weird. It's like, this is my dream book. And I couldn't anchor it myself. I got to do the covers. But that, was, that was it. it, it it's, it, it's, a, it's a wacky biz. I, I guess I'm lucky. Some people get pigeonholed in, in one little you know, job. Like, you're, the, you're an anchor. You're a letterer. You're whatever. And to get out of that, to do something else, is not always easy. And, and uh, you kind of got to jump at the chance if somebody offers you something else to do so you can expand. But, you know, look at guys like Jimmy Pelmiotis, you know, really was a inker for years. And now he's one of the most successful writers in comics. It's, uh, it can happen. 
Since you brought up Plastic Man, we're a Power Pack podcast, so we don't know a huge amount about DC, but we do like alliteration. So could you <laughs> tell us more about Plastic Patrick or Plastic Man, Patrick Eel O'Brien? Uh, you were the celebrated artist on the 1988 miniseries with Phil Foglio. So what was it like working on that stretchy character? Earlier, I was talking about my favorite cartoonists or some of the greatest, and I would have put Harvey Kurtzman in that group. I would also put Jack Cole, the creator of Plastic Man, in the in the top five of comic book uh, cartoons. I just absolutely adore his work. And I think Plastic Man is the, the, he's my favorite superhero, period. It's just the most beautifully drawn humor strip. And Jack Cole was almost endlessly inventive. I mean, he came up with gags and, and just every, every issue of Plastic Man and police comics, just the most amazingly fluid, beautiful artwork. And then he later shifted into noir in the late 40s when they started turning it into a more of a sort of horror humor comic, if you can imagine that. And he did, he did, the, he did the lighting and everything required for that. I loved it. And I really did treat it in some ways as an homage to Jack Cole. And the way it came about, frankly, is I had heard, I think probably through Doug Rice. Doug Rice, Phil Folio, and myself, we were the, we sort of sat around and plotted the issues and came up with the stories. Phil wrote the script, and then and then I did the penciling. But Doug, I think, told me, you know, I heard that Phil Folia was offered Plastic Man at DC. I said, what? And he said, yeah, but Phil doesn't, he's not sure he wants to do it. He doesn't really know the character. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was, yeah, I was at a loss for words. And I just, I, I just ran over there, you know, and I, I, I don't know if I did that literally. Maybe I called him, but he just said, Phil if you really don't want to do this, but you want to write it, I want to pencil this. And it kind of happened that way. And if Mike Gold was the editor, Mike had been my editor at First Comics. So, you know, we had, we'd worked together, but it was, it was just like, I kind of just jammed my way into that project, you know, by, by, by enthusiasm and love of the character. It was a really, it was great to do. It was fun to do. It was, there were some real serious problems. Uh, that was the time when they were doing the flexographic press mm-hmm. last so the lines would get wiggly and uh, there's some kind of ugly production things but I, yeah that, that it, working on Plastic Man was, it was a dream and it was fun the style I don't know for me the style changed because I learned so much drawing four issues by the fourth issue I was Doug said how come you're drawing Woozy differently you know Woozy is Plaz's mm. sidekick Woozy winks which someone recently told me that Woozy was patterned after character actor Hugh Herbert you guys may have heard of possibly, hmm. but you'll, he would be a supporting player back in the thirties and uh, into the forties. Anyway, I, I, I didn't even know that. And I, you know, I'm a plastic man boss. So we had the opportunity to reach out to John Bogdanoff before the podcast and ask him if there was questions he would ask you. And he said, he told us that your genius comes from grokking the essences of whatever you're working on. You grokked Jack Cole's Plastic Man the same way you grokked John himself. Per John, he wanted us to ask you about extreme perspectiveness. And if you are aware you have that power, is it something that you worked consciously to develop? Or is it just a conscious part of your process or method? Or is it just your genius? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the word genius here when we're talking about <laughs> Jack Cole and Harvey Kurtzman, but what do you mean by extreme perspectiveness? I'm not sure. What- I believe that he, what he's talking about is the way that you're able to really encapsulate somebody's style and somebody's essence of how they do their work. It's a little bit like we were oh. talking to you before of, of how you 
you try to bring what or emphasize what they are drawing when they when they're drawing as as a finisher. When you were drawing Plastic Man, I think he's really saying that you were really capturing that essence of what Jack Cole did. Well, uh, okay. I mean, it was a very conscious effort that I tried to model the drawing of Plaz on the way Jack did it. And I really, I mean, other people tell me, oh, Hillary, I always know when you ink something, for instance. They'll, they'll tell me that. And I don't, I don't see my style as that much of a standout uh, style. Like, you know, like Wally Wood, one of my favorite artists and an inker who I've learned a heck of a lot from. And a lot of the things I do, I learned in pattern after what Wally Wood did. Wallace Wood. Apparently, he didn't like to be called Wally. Sorry. Sorry, well, sorry Wallace. Anyway, Woody. He liked Woody, though. But Woody, Woody, Woody would often dominate the penciler, right? He'd essentially erase the drawing if he didn't like it. And his style was just, he couldn't draw any other way than Woody. And he blended with different artists. And I think it was partly a matter of certain artists he respected. Joe Sinnott inking Jack Kirby doesn't really look like Jack Kirby, right? Mm-hmm. right. He refines the faces. He... He softens things and, and and makes them a little more traditional uh, illustration. Wood would do the same thing. He would just turn everybody into wood. And I, I've never felt like I did that. And it's just, to me, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to use words like sensitivity, but I just, if I see, if something looks good to me and there's a style, if you start changing it, to me, it starts to fall apart. There are plenty of inker teams where the penciler is dominated by the inker, and I love it just fine. Like, I do love Hollywood inking anybody because <laughs> i love his inking so i don't really care that he changed the penciler to to get that effect i just that was never really in my personality i don't feel like that was something i want to do though every once in a while you'll get a penciler and they just need help and you have to you have to kind of go an extra yeah i mean typically in comics they would pay you if, if you had to do extra work but if it's just because the guy can't draw well you're not going to get paid for that you know, if they give you breakdowns, you know, breakdowns or layouts or something, you get more money per page because you're doing part of the drawing. Mm-hmm. But it's a case of just fixing things because a guy can't draw. Uh, you know, you just have to suck it up and you get your ink and write anyway. <laughs> I think that, it, and going back to John's word of genius, and we really like your work as well. So you know, don't 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 take offense at it. But I think that what you just said. Is kind of proof of that. And I think that's what John was trying to say with that question is you're cognizant of the work that somebody's put in and you're not willing to change it, but you're willing to encourage it or fix it where necessary, but you're not willing to change it and you're willing to let that go through. And I think that also is what you did on Plastic Man as well. I will admit to you, I had not read your run on Plastic Man until last night. I, I bought it and I was hoping to get through all four issues last night and I would have too, except Darn it, it turned to 12 o'clock at night, and my eyes said, no, 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 we are going to sleep. Um, <laughs> but I did notice between the first and second issue that there was that that stylistic change, which was also very fantastic. First issue was very, very cartoony, and the second one just had a little bit more noir in it. So I was, mm-hmm. I'm interested in finishing up that run and seeing how you're, you progress through. You know, one thing that happened, and this is purely a technical thing, I was talking to John Nyberg, who was thinking that book, and John said, well, what, you know, how do you want it inked? He was, li- he wanted to know, this is some a conversation you would have with a penciler. If, 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 if you, maybe he's, maybe pencilers had given him that, you know, kind of guidance before where they would say, well, I'd really like to go for this kind of look. And they'd name an inker or a certain art style. I, I don't know if I ever had that 
uh, well, I, I don't think Anika ever asked me before, what do you want me to do? Like, what, how do you want me to work this? I'm like, you know, you just ink it, right? <laughs> I said, well, what look are you going for? So I named artists from that period, Jack Cole himself, Lou Fine. And when I said Lou Fine, John just said, oh, now, he was another guy that worked at Quality Comics, the publisher that did Plastic Man. And he's a beautiful artist and a master of the brush. And John had, John Nyberg was a, a comics fan himself. And he had, a, he had an idea of what that was. And he, I mean, the word Lou Fine, Fine is in his name. He thought it meant very thin, fine lines. And, and, and Fine did very detailed work, but there was a fluidity to it. And when I saw the inks on the, coming in on the first issue, I was worried based on my history of working on the books that were printed on the flexographic press that some of these lines would not print. They, what ha- would happen is they would, if they were too thin, at some point they would start wiggling. The plate would not give you the straight line, but it would start wiggling. Literally, you'd get a, a wiggly line, a wavy, wiggly line. It was terrible. It would, be, it would ruin the drawings. And, and I, you know, I called up John. I said, John, you know, let me show you some stuff that, that, that Lou did besides this. I drove up there and I brought work with me. And I was showing, he's like, oh, I thought you meant something much more, you know, thinner and what. And so, so I think John's work changed a little bit, whatever. I mean, I'm not sure exactly when I was up there now, but um, he lived in Wisconsin. So I drove up from Wisconsin to Madison and, and, and we talked. <laughs> I remember my editor saying, he's, he was like, call, he called me up or I called him, but he said, Hillary, why'd you go and piss off a good anchor? And I'm like, <laughs> what? You know, well, I, I hear you were telling me you didn't like the inking. And, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, we were just having an artist to artist conversation. And I explained to him that I was worried the stuff wouldn't print. And he's like, oh, it'll print fine. I go, I don't think so. And sure enough, the first issue came out and there were all kinds of wiggly lines. <laughs> but John and I had no problem at all. We're, I mean, you know, we were friends and it's like, I don't know what the heck was going on there, but you know, like I was crossing some line. You don't talk to anchors and, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, I think the style will evolve, but I was just learning, you know, honestly, it's really hard to start drawing something on the on page one and have your look down, like know what you're doing on that character. And I'd never really drawn like Jack Cole before. I never tried to draw that character. And so it took me a little while to figure out how I was going to do it. And I think it evolved more into a little more of me simplifying the, the characters a little bit and less slavishly studying Cole like I was in the first issue, maybe not doing, not doing a perfect copy of him by any means, but trying to, <laughs> trying to do it as opposed to just absorbing it and then drawing it my way. Right. Right. How about, uh, we shift over to talking about some power pack. Yeah. So you inked a number of power pack comics and I think you did those for John. So like starting in number 28 and with most of the issues through, uh, through 54, how did you get on to Power Pack as the anchor was like, did John go, I want you, uh, were you assigned? And then did you have a favorite issue or cover that you collaborated with? Well, I, I honestly don't remember specifically if, you know, I doubt John knew who I was as an anchor because I was just doing this and that. I probably Carl Potts put us together. Like, you know, Carl is an artist himself and he's the editor and, and he probably thought, you know, John's taking over from June on the book and, and he's like, okay, who, you know, who can we get to ink him? And I'd done work for Carl before. So I assume that's how it happened, but honestly, that's a little, that's lost in the mist of time here. But, you know, from the beginning, I, I just, 
I don't think I have anything from those first couple issues. I think the first issue I have is like around 31 maybe. Um, but no, I, I felt like we were clicking very quickly. I learned so much as an inker in the intervening years. You know, when I started at Marvel, we talked about the thing. I was just a much better inker by then. You know, much more able to adapt to a penciler and to try to figure that out on ink. I don't know if I have a favorite issue, but um, there's so many. There, there's like a, there, I have favorite drawings. One of my favorite drawings in, in, that I ever inked is uh, Franklin Richards was introduced as a character in the power pack at some point. And the John's drawings of Franklin, there was something about them that were just, there was something different. There was a sensitivity and a loveliness to these delicate features of this young boy. And there was one panel in particular. I remember when I got the pencils, Barry, I called my friend Barry into the room. I Barry, look at this drawing. Franklin was sleeping on a couch, and I have no idea what issue he was in. I don't own the page. John got that one, I guess. <laughs> and, and I was like, is that the most beautiful drawing you've ever seen? You know, it was just so. And I, I, I talked to John on the phone, and he said, well, Hillary, I, I'm glad you like it. That's my son, Kal-El. Yeah, I used him as the model for Franklin, and he was sleeping on the couch, and I drew him. And I'm like, oh, my God, no wonder it was a beautiful drawing, right? Yep. He's just all the love he has for his son is put into that character. You know, it just, oh, I don't know. I was going to ask if you knew the, uh, you know, the the muse for Franklin in the books. And actually, the muse for Franklin's teddy bear as well. It's Kal-El's teddy bear. So, oh, is that really? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if John ever told me that. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I just knew, you, you could just tell there was something special about, about the way he drew that character. Yeah. I think we could go and find that too. I, I pulled down my my very heavy, ah, very heavy power omnibus book and I was starting to flip through there really quickly just to it see. It would have been of, nice if I had one of those, but I haven't. I haven't you're not alone in saying that. There's a lot of original members who are kind of like, oh, that's cool that that's out now and I'm not being comped one. <laughs> I didn't think John got one, which is kind of criminal. You know, I I mean, know name yeah. is right there. Name is right there on the, on the spine. He should get one. Yeah. No, this is a this is a, this is a great book. I'm glad they're doing this. With the second edition is coming out probably in the next couple of weeks, I believe. Yeah. It's a great way to be able to just be able to pull it off the shelf and flip through and see the wonderful sure. artwork. Yeah, I think the second omnibus is coming out June twenty second, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yes. Okay. Any issue would come in. The pencils would come in. I I'm just like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I, I there really weren't any down issues. You know, like we're like, eh, well, I guess this one will be okay. Yeah, there was there was the issue where they were paying homage to Windsor McKay and old comic strips and Mobius, you know, that one, you know, mm-hmm. sideways. Elsewhere. I just, you know, there's just so many wonderful things in that run. And every once in a while, they'd have to squeeze the X-Men or something in some crossover. And, you know, Louise's stories were always wonderful. But there were so many, you know, my, sometimes my favorite scenes, I just sold all these pages. I, I finally started pulling out my originals and I, I put a couple online to see if anyone would want them. And there are people that are fans of this book. And I was gratified that people were still interested. Just the pages where the kids are just hanging out and doing their stick, you know, being kids and getting into fights and bickering and playing around and being silly. They're just wonderful. And that's where John would just, his body language of the character, the staging and the, and the drawing work, that expressive drawing of his, that's where that he just showed. I got to tell you that that's some of our favorite stuff from the books itself. We tend to like a lot of those 
everyday life scenarios where the kids are just doing the everyday life stuff. Sure, the big explosions and spaceships, those are all fun and neat and stuff. But when you just have the kids being kids, it's kind of neat. It's really fun. And, and like you said, he's got an eye. He's one of those rare artists that has the eye to draw kids. And to be able to capture that and to be able to express it is really wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And having a wonderful inker like yourself to, you know, emphasize that. A veritable genius. A veritable genius. (laughs) We're not arguing that. (laughs) That's self-described genius. (laughs) (laughs) Allow me to update your wiki real quick. No! <laughs> I, want to, I want to do just a quick aside on that. I was uh, looking up some wiki stuff on you and there's one where the post on you is Hillary Barter is a famous writer on the famous writer list. He is a writer who is famous as a writer. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that is, what? how does he survive with such great praise and so much knowledge of him out there? <laughs> and then like an ad pops up going, you should give us all your personal information and sign up. And I'm like, no, I think I'm good now. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other wonderful memories of working on the book with John or with any other, anybody else on the book with Power Pack? Hmm. Specific memories. It, this is going back a ways. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, one of my fondest memories is just during that run, which was sort of off and on. I wasn't in every issue. John wasn't in every issue. I'm not. I'm not sure if I was taking breaks to do other things or if I was just. Uh, you know, we we were just behind schedule constantly. I can't remember. I just remember that we'd have these late night conversations. You know, you'd be working, probably had the phone, you know, put the speakerphone on and just, I'd be inking and talking to John. And, and we, having never met at that point, um, and we just spent all this time talking. And, I, you know, I met, I met uh, I just recently met Kevin Nolan. He's the guy that worked did these what so-called reality checks in the Plastic Man miniseries. I requested him as the guy to do it. I really wanted a style much different from mine, and Kevin is one of my favorite artists. But we never met. But he's doing this, and we end up talking on the phone. And we we talked on the phone. You know, he, he just talked for hours. Artists, if you hit it off and you're talking about comics or something you love, you can just you know time just goes by. And uh, the same same thing with Mark Nelson. You know, we'd just be talking. We had Mark and I had this thing where it was, um, we'd say, "Oh, we're watching Letterman," and and that what what that meant was is we'd we were on the phone and we both stopped talking and we were just working, but we were still on the phone. We were so comfortable being in that space of drawing and 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 having this this little you know phone box going that we would just like five minutes would go by and he's like, "Oh, we're watching Letterman again." (laughs) <laughs> you know, the TV's on in the background. We both have the same channel on. Yeah. We're both watching the same show, and we're not actually talking yet. We're we're still on the phone. What you're doing is called parallel play. You're yeah. uh, you're just you're comfortable enough with the person where you're like, yeah, I, we're together, but I can kind of do my thing, whether it's reading or and I, you can do your thing, which might be watching TV. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun how you can do that. It's the the comfortable silences. Yeah, well, and you know you're comfortable or tired. Uh, but you know in the case of of bog you know it was kind of sad because i think once power pack once that run was over once we weren't working together i didn't talk to him as much and we eventually kind of you know drifted apart and then have reconnected on online and 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 it's been nice to kind of sort of talk to him again but yeah you just sort of have this it, it felt like it was the season of bog for a few years you know we just we were connecting and having fun working on the book together 
But I, you know, it's for me, anytime John would do stuff with lighting and atmospherics, that's something that I love doing on my own work. So our, our work was really aligned when, when, when he would do something very dramatic. I, that's where I feel like I just, I gravitate towards that kind of, the stuff I learned from old movies, you know, the lighting, the film noir kind of shadows and all that. Anytime a penciler does that stuff, I kind of go, ooh, oh, that's going to be a fun panel day. I, I think that I'm good before uh, before our conversation is completely over. I'm going to buy a couple of those pages off you because <laughs> because I don't I don't have any original power pack pages. Here's an opportunity where I can grab a couple of those. All right. Well, yeah. You know, tell me which tell me tell me which which issues or which pages you're looking for. Maybe give me something. To, <laughs> I, I did. You know, inkers get a third of the pages, and I still have most of the ones from those. From we, those years, so. we will we will work on this probably after the podcast. But yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you were asking about favorite stories or favorite uh-huh. moments. I, I, I remember that issue that um, they're at uh, some kind of entertainment place where there's dinosaurs and they come. here. Who's who's the villain in that one? Uh, it's uh, the Mad Thinker. Yeah, the Mad Thinker is sort of behind there, and I, he must be controlling these animatronic dinosaurs. But there's just these great scenes of them in a mall with dinosaurs and all these you know, beautiful drawings. And I, I don't know if John had models of dinosaurs or if he was working from other reference, but they were just lovely drawings with lighting, you know, and all the, all the you know, kind of like, you know, uh, leathery skin effects, all the wrinkles, all, just beautiful drawings. It was, you know, I know a lot, I love that stuff, working on that stuff. I go, that's also where there was one shot of callback to Bill Watterson where they have Calvin and Hodds walking through there too. I was thinking the same thing myself. They're dragging him, yep. right? Yep. He's, he's yep. like, ah, I want to go over there and they're dragging him. Yeah. <laughs> it looked like it was just a call out love pictures of a lot of people that it might've just been that John knew because it seemed like there was a lot of like, that's not just a background person. That is somebody put face forward prevalent where it's like, this must be somebody that he knew, or I don't know if it was maybe if you put anybody in that you knew where he was just like, Hey, you got loved ones, throw them in. I didn't throw anybody in there. I mean, John did the pencils, but I think there was the issue where they go to Maine. I think it's with the, the way and all of that. Mm-hmm. When they're, when they, they plan that big, 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 you know, summer vacation trip, there's, there's shots of all these kids on the beach or, or walking around the, or the resort or wherever they are. And John and his family are in there. And at, at some point, and this literally happened just in within this last year, I'm looking through the pages and I see this and I go, wait a minute, how did I get this page? You know? And I, I wrote John and I'm like, John, this is your family in this panel, right? That's you and your wife. And he's like, yeah, yeah oh yeah. That's and I was like, well, I, you know, I got to send you the page. So, you know, I sent him that page and uh, it just, it was so crazy that <laughs> like I've had this thing sitting in my, pantry and the stacks of art I have in there with, you know, for 20 or more years, like this has no, this does not have the same meaning for me that it would for him. So that was, that was kind of fun to, to return that to him. By the same token, Carl Potts was in town and I was like, Carl, did you ever get any art from Powerpack? He's like, no. And I'm like, well, we got to figure, we got to resolve that. And so there, I found one of the covers I had, he actually did the layout. And so Bog signed it after Potts or Kapotz or whatever. So I'm like, well, how about this one? He's like, perfect. We are going to talk. Um, speaking of car bots. <laughs> yeah, this is all my clever ploy to get more pages. Take get more pages my money. 
take my money. <laughs> Just got to drop a couple more names. Yeah, and then Wheezy and June were over, and we were looking at this one right here, and they handled it for a while. You can t- you see the smudge? That's June's thumbprint. Speaking of Carl Potts, you were the second interview we've had since we covered an issue of What The that featured a parody of Power Pack. That was What The number one. And you and Carl Potts both were involved in that issue. And then you went on to write and draw more issues of this. So, you know, what about that book kept you coming back, not only as an artist, but also, I believe, a writer a couple times, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I even fr- from the very first, I was involved in stories. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily script. I kind of have always been a little bit shy about doing all the full script myself for whatever reason. And I like having the comfort of having, you know, giving a plot to a, a professional writer. <laughs> Carl was always throwing different stuff at me to ink. And I inked different covers and the page of this. For a while, I was just, all I ever did was two pages of this book and two pages of that. I was the guy they'd call up and say, how many pages can you get done over the weekend? And I'd say three, and they'd send me three, and then I'd mail them out on Monday. It was just, it was a weird job because I was just doing piecework. But one of those covers that I did was uh, an Eric Larson Punisher cover. And in the middle of, uh, it was like there was some character in the foreground. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was a woman. And then she was holding two guns in either hand. It's like a Western showdown with automatic guns and, and the Punisher and whoever was in the back. There were bullets flying everywhere. And I was like, I just hated it so much. Mm-hmm. I hated the character. I hated like you know, a comic about a hero that shot and killed people. It, it, it was not the comics I grew up with. And I really, I, I and, and, and while I was inking it, I just said, I don't ever want to touch this character. And I, and I signed my name. This is the only regret I have is I signed my name, Barda comma Hillary, instead of the other way around, like I was filling out a form because I wanted to send a message somehow, but it was how was, I was feeling like, this is a job. I, really, mm-hmm. I wasn't happy with the job. It, had, it was nothing about Eric Larson. And that's why I regretted it. Like I somehow was insulting him. It was not about his art. But I told Carl, I said, Carl, don't offer me any more punishment. I don't want to do it. I just really love the character. I, and, and he said, I respect that. That's fine. But when he told me about what that, I said, well, okay, but I want to, now I want to do a parody of that character. And this goes back to talking about Mad, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. what the is a softer, it's a, a company doing, you know, parodying its own comics. And they're never going to do it as savagely as, as another company would. But it still is parody, and and I I really there were two characters that were the most violent of Marvel: was Wolverine and the Punisher, and those were the characters I did again and again in what the I did a few other things, but mostly I was like you know I just want to make these kids laugh at these characters, I want to undermine these characters in any way I can, and the first issue I had the idea for the story, and then I uh, I, I told Peter Gillis and. He wrote the script and then I penciled it. And Carl said, well, uh, I'm going to have someone else ink it. And I was kind of brokenhearted. He said, you have your choice. You can have Kevin Nolan or John Severin. And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, I said, let's let's go with John Severin, you know, mm-hmm. one of the original mad artists. And it was just I, I called him up and thanked him for doing it and told him how much I loved his work. It was great. I'm just going through and looking at it now. And I having conversations with you making me really appreciate a little bit more of this. And it's. It's really great. It's really fun. I and and I thank you very much for doing it. I I know Jeff when we were reviewing it, he's like, ah, parody is not entirely my thing here, and I'm like, oh, but this is good stuff. And especially when especially when you're a kid, 
this hits you just right. And this is this is what gets you into that that comedy aspect of it too. An adult human came up to me at a Chicago show just maybe two years ago or so and paid me the greatest compliment I've ever been paid in my life. He told me that one of the first, if not the first comics he read was an issue of what the, and he was reading my story and he laughed so hard he peed his pants. (laughs) (laughs) He he said he was on the bus going to grades. He was, he was in grade school. And I said, I hope the tell me, I hope the bus was on the way home. He said, yes. But he, you know, he just laughing so hard. I was like, you can't, you know, you can't give you a, a, a humorist any greater praise, you know. No, that, that's and, true. So there you go. My high, my high point in comics was somebody soiling himself. <laughs> We've had somebody say that they did a uh, on one of the things that we did on our show. He was at work and he took a sip of like water or soda or something, and then uh, something we said made him do a spit take spit and uh, then yeah. start trying to choking. And it's just like, spit takes are laugh money. It's like, if you're on if you're on the opposite end of it, it's just it's just like, I said something so funny, you, you spit up your drink all over me. Uh, the terrible price of comedy, but <laughs> I got paid in laugh money. So, <laughs> oh, bodily fluids. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hopefully it was water. <laughs> he didn't sneeze on you, did he? Uh, no, he didn't sneeze. Uh, I have one friend. Yeah, I think I've had uh, somebody spit water on me. And then this person, I think, just uh, spit water on their work computer and then had to explain. He was just like, oh, no, I just kind of choked instead of explaining. Well, I was listening to a podcast and they made a thing that was funny. Dude. And then I've also had, I think, Dr. Pepper spit on me before. <laughs> so. Well, hello. Someone has joined us here. This is Carrie, who we discovered that child labor is replenishable. So we wanted to use her on our show. And also we get to use her voice to do Katie's lines and uh, the sound effects. Yep. Well, cool. Nice to meet you. We like to use her for many things, including asking questions of our guests. I hope you enjoy. What pets do you have? What pets do I have? Well, I don't have any pets at the moment, but I had a dog. His name was Leo. He was named by children in the hospital where he was brought in. They, they brought kittens and puppies into the hospital for the patients who are all children in this hospital. And they named him after one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And my girlfriend was working at, as a nurse at that hospital. Excuse me, not a nurse. She was a therapist. But anyway, she was working at the hospital. And she said, Hillary, you got to you have to take this puppy. He's, they're trying to find homes for the pets. And I said, oh, I don't know why I want a dog. But I fell in love with him the moment I saw him. And, and he was my best friend for like 16 years. He's no longer with me. But that was my dog, Leo. And I haven't had the heart to get another dog because I love him so much. How perfect is it that you would get a dog that they named after a comic book character? <laughs> is it, I didn't even have to name him myself. And, and and one of my best friends, my upstairs neighbor, in fact, his father is named Leo and when he'd heard my dog was named Leo, he's like, you named your dog after me? You know, because he thought it was an insult somehow. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 it was a different Leo. It was actually that Leo, my friend's father, is an artist. I said, no, this is Leonardo da Vinci, the artist. Because <laughs> <laughs> Leo the turtle is named after Leo, Leonardo. Yep. So. Yep. Anyway, that's a lot of roundabout way to say I had a dog. <laughs> and I have, my neighbors, I mentioned my neighbors upstairs, they have a dog who's a puggle. You know what puggles are? They're crossed between pugs and and, and uh, beagles, and uh, he's not quite as scrunchy up as you know the face of, of a pug, but he's kind of short and stout. And I we walk him every morning. I walk my friend and I will walk his dog. So I still and I, and he and I dog sit for him. 
a lot. He just comes down the stairs and walks into my apartment sometimes because I leave my back door open. <laughs> He'll just walk in. They're like, oh, there's Banjo, the dog. <laughs> I put Banjo in one of my comics, too. I did a, a comic with the um, Mars Attacks characters, and there's uh-huh. a famous card with the, them zapping a poodle, and I just swapped in Banjo for the poodle. Nice. Very nice. So zapping a puggle. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to look for that one. Do you guys have a pet? We have three cats. Three cats? Okay. Do they get along, the cats? Toby and Bert, the two oldest, uh, kind of get along more than they do with Grace. Bert's really good-natured, so I bet he doesn't have the heart to like tell Grace that she's really, really loud. Toby, Toby <laughs> would do so by nipping her. Uh-huh. They kind of work it out, though, somehow, usually. You know, they have a pecking order, right? I mean, generally. Yeah. yeah. Do you have another question? Yep, we got a couple more here. I like to draw, draw my own comics. Do you have any advice on how to improve as an artist? I, I have very simple advice. And what I would say is uh, the temptation for artists and comics is usually to copy other artists. That's okay. But I think the best way to draw and to learn how to draw is to draw from life. So draw your father, draw your friends, draw yourself in a mirror. The more, the more you draw from life, as opposed to copying another artist, the more you're going to draw like yourself because you're not filtering through someone else's style. And I think it speeds up the process of finding your own identity as an artist, your own style, whatever you're looking for. So practice uh, life drawing, you know, drawing the human figure if you can. And that's you. you got a mirror. You can draw everything. You know, with a mirror, you've got the usual body parts. You just you just hold up your hand and you turn it at whatever angle you want, and you can you can you can practice drawing. Nice. Practice, practice, practice. And the other thing I would tell people is, if you don't know how to draw something and you are avoiding it, the only way to really learn something new is by drawing something you don't know how to draw. So if you're uncomfortable drawing feet or hands or whatever it is, cars, until you draw those things, you'll never get. You'll never expand. You'll never grow as an artist. You'll just be drawing the things in your own little comfort zone. But you need to you need to get outside that comfort zone. And generally, if you're writing for yourself, you're going to write the stories about the things you want to draw, which is cool. But you're not going to push yourself out of that zone. So sometimes just just practice drawing the stuff you're not you, you don't feel good at, and eventually you'll figure it out. Thanks. It's very good advice. You're welcome. Do you have a favorite Power Pack character? You know, I, I honestly don't even know that I do. We were talking earlier. I love the way Franklin Richards, who is sort of a guest member, maybe. Uh, I, I love the way Franklin was drawn. But I, I, I think Katie's just so darn cute. I like Katie. Jack and Katie, I think Jack, because he was such a rascal and he's always getting into trouble or, you know, saying saying the goofy things, you know, he, he, was, he was a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. Alex is kind of serious, you know, and mm-hmm. whatever. He's he's great, but you kind of like the prankster. <laughs> <laughs> Jack's my favorite, too. I just like Katie because after you do the voice of her for a few times, uh, you start to get really used to her, and then you just are completely on her. <laughs> she is our, she is you, our Katie. You identify with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Carrie's saying, I like having this job, and... That's my character, so I like it when she gets lines. (laughs) 
So you guys reenact the comics a little bit? I mean, uh... a little bit. We we do our own fun little retelling, and then whenever whenever it's a good line, we try to put the line in there. I do Alex's voice, and Alex is always a little little scared. And then she does Katie vo- Katie's voice. Uh, I get my wife to do Julie's voice, and then I pitch it down a little bit because she sounds young, anyways. Jeff does Jack's voice. Uh, Jeff, go on. Well, you see, dog breath, I don't think I need to do my homework today because I'm not a smarty pants like smart Alex. Uh, the very first issue we d- episode that we did, we were talking and decided that Jack had a very curmudgeonly soul. And so I just turned him into an old, old-timey old prospector and have been holding on to that voice forever. I was going to say, that's an interesting choice, you know, <laughs> we just saw this kind of like that cantankerous uh prospector kind of thing and so just doing lines and ran that voice and i'm like yep i'm gonna hold with that voice forever now <laughs> jack gabby hayes uh <laughs> sometimes they do advertisements at one the beginning of one show and one time i did the voice of She-Hulk, and then he just toughened it up. And that was literally <laughs> me trying to sound tough, and then he just toughened it more. Yeah, I, I got, by the time I was done running it through a lot of different scrubs on the ad- audacity, Carrie was like, I can't even recognize my own voice. <laughs> well, I don't know. If Jack can be a prospector, She-Hulk can be a you know 10-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun. I mean, it's... It's not canon. It's just canon in our podcast universe. <laughs> it's okay with me. Okay. You want to say thank you? Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. We will start wrapping up here. we got a couple more questions we were going to ask you from our listeners. Nicholas Prom uh, was wondering, he wants to know everything about your work illustrating Shakedown Street in Grateful Dead Comics number six. Oh, boy, I, I thought these would be power pack questions. That, <laughs> that's a curveball. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm happy it's a fun curveball because I got to say, I think that's one of the best things I've ever drawn, even though I don't like the finished product because I'm not crazy about the color. What it was is it, it was a book where essentially, he, he, I'm sure your, your, uh, your listener has, has read the books. It, it was sort of the equivalent of a comic book rock video, right? You, we were illustrating a song and, he, and the one thing we had to do is use all the lyrics they did not tell us what the story had to be about it was up to the artist so we were writing and drawing the thing and i just you know the, I, there was a list of songs you know because they were checking off the songs that other people had drawn so i just picked that song because i was familiar with it and i had an idea i wanted to do this story about homeless people and kind of a poetic story without a real strong narrative um, more symbolic, maybe you might say. And that story had, you know, it was in the city and then in some neighborhood, this part of town, uh, it refers to in the lyrics. And I tried to compose it with these longer panels where it was, shadows were very important. It was from light to dark. It kind of had to do with the, the theme of this growing problem of the homeless people and, and their mass, the numbers grow during the, course of the comic book it becomes almost like an army of homeless people I, it was a really big deal for me and i was just very unhappy with the color and i thought the coloring really did not follow my my idea and when i talked to the guy on the phone about it he just said i'm gonna do it my way and i'm like okay 
And so I, yeah. it's just, but I still have the originals and I'm just really, you know, like some of my favorite drawing I ever did. I, there's some, not every page is perfect, but the ones I like, I just think, yeah, I really plotted it out. I, I lettered it myself and I just, so I designed it all to leave room for the lettering and then it, I don't know. And there's always positive and negative space. Some of the lettering is white on black and the shadows and some is black on white in the lit areas. I don't know if that explains it, but uh, I, we got one letter, at least I was told, I was forwarded um, from Kitchen Sink, the publisher sent me the letter. They said, well, you got you got a, you know, a, a letter about your story. And he, and the writer, they, they were a fan of the dead and they hated my story because they said, you took one of the funkiest stories and funkiest songs rather that the dead ever did. And you turned it into a total downer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the only feedback I got from the story is it was a total drag. And and, he, and I, I don't know what everybody else thought, but that, that's, that's, I hope this person liked the story. I know that uh, Nicholas Prom currently does a show called Captain Freaks Out Psychedelic Radio Show. And he just, it's basically a bunch of psychedelic, uh, radio songs that he does back to back to back with some little commercials in the middle of it. But he's also another Portland area resident. And I've actually, we've had him on our show before. I've gone out to a bar with him many, many times. He's a big fan of music. I'm pretty sure he likes it, but I'm definitely going to be talking to him about it. And I'm definitely going to borrow the issue from him because I have not seen it, but I am fascinated by it now. So yeah, just just think of it as a sort of a, almost 1930s style. There was a movie, I think there were two versions of it, maybe made by the same guy, and I'm going to forget. I think, well, actually, I think it was by Abel Gantz, who was famous for making Napoleon. I think that was his biggest film, literally biggest. They, mm-hmm. At some point, three screens. It was the widest film ever made with three different cameras that were you know tied together in projection. He made a film called Jacques, uh, I Accused, mm-hmm. and it was like the dead of previous wars, as the rumblings of the new war was starting up, the dead rise up to protest that they're going to do it, you know, that they're going to be killing more more men for war. And it's there's this army of the dead. And I, I'm not saying that the dead and the homeless are, I wasn't equating them, but I think that might have been a visual inspiration. This 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 sort of like just silent army marching, you know, of the dead. It's, it's really a striking visual. Anyway, I've got to try to find this book now and I got to check it out because I'm I am completely fascinated by it. So I, I want to look this one up. <laughs> and I said Army of the Dead. I don't think there was any connection at all between the Grateful Dead and the Dead. <laughs> decades apart. Decades apart. Decades. <laughs> I just realized that sounded like I was making some connection. and That's not what I meant. <laughs> anyway, there you go. But yeah, I think I think the same guy did it as a silent movie. The same story. And then he did it on the eve of World War II. You know, okay, you, you, you do one about World War One, and then you do one about World War Two. It's like, yeah, this unfortunately never gets old. You know, there's always going to be another war, it looked like. Anyway. I'll just say on that, yeah, about the wars, it's like, yeah, second verse, same as the first kind of thing, basically, unfortunately. There you go. But another one of our listeners, Ian Jackson, wrote, We're in Maine for a couple of days, and my kids remembered to bring these favorites for us to read while we were here. And he's referencing the power pack issues where they went to Maine and dealt with dolphins. The style of the dolphin dream sequence has always interested me. How did he, you, and John approach that differently? And how much photo reference was used for Maine? Well, okay, as the inker, I didn't use any photo reference because John John penciled everything. He drew that whatever was drawn... The characters, the mm-hmm. reference from Maine, John did that. That was a, I, I mean, I have that, I have those pages here somewhere. I really like it because 
this sort of under the way he did the shadowy stuff with the dolphins underwater. I can't remember the dream sequence stuff for some reason. What do you remember what that? Um, it's been a while since I looked at this stuff. It's been if, I, if I remember right, the dolphin dream sequence was the Franklin dreaming that he was the baby dolphin mm-hmm. swimming with his pod and his mom. And then they got into water that was toxic and they were choking and gasping. And, you know, it's just like he was watching kind of the pod members dying and his mom was trying to keep him afloat. But eventually she grew weak, too. And he sank and, you know, was sinking to the bottom of this toxic water and, and was dying. And that at which point, I believe then Franklin woke up gasping and they're like, Oh my gosh, Franklin's dying. Cause he was locked in the dream. I think that the, the shadowy, the interesting, you say, you mentioned the shadowy part because that was one of our favorite uh, pieces of art in that book. Yeah. Yep, dolphin, dolphin dreaming. dreaming. Mm-hmm. So it's actually the name of the story. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even remember that. Oh, I, I just didn't remember the dreaming part. I, I remember the visuals. We were talking earlier. I think I, I the, one of the pages I gave to John was from the story. Didn't, so this is him waking up probably, right? Franklin waking up from the dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his dialogue here is, I was a dolphin, a little baby one. I was with mama. My mama loved me. But something in the water made me make up, made us sick. I, I died. So that was in the last issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so this is a, they're, they're recapping it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. See, but uh, the visuals on this is just these dolphins with the water. I mean, it was a rather stylized way to draw underwater scenes. I thought, but really, I loved it. I mean, I knew, you know, I I know. Uh, yeah, I want to say that a lot of those underwater scenes were, were some of our favorites from that issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I, they were some of my favorites to ink too. So anyway, John did the research. That's that's the short answer. <laughs> I just need to what he came up with. Let me ask you one more question from our listeners. And this is one of our favorite. It's the one we always end with. And this is from our friend, Tim Price, or we like to call him the pod crasher. He likes to hit our guests with specific cheese based questions. So you've got credits on so many amazing books. Maybe you can answer this. Who makes the better macaroni and cheese? Maggie Power or Woozy Winks? And or same question. But Cable or Grimjack? Uh, who who are Grimjack? Cable or Grimjack? Cable or Grimjack? Well, I, I you know, it's got to be Grimjack of those two. Um, but so it's so it's Woozy Power or Ma- Woozy Winks makes the best. Make Makey Power or Woozy Winks? Who makes the best mac and cheese? Wow, I, I that is the strangest question. I ever- I, I'm literally trying to go, well, in what issue of the... the <laughs> no, this man? is our buddy, Tim. He just <laughs> likes asking cheese questions. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Woozy ate more mac and cheese than she did because Woozy, you know, enjoyed eating. Uh, <laughs> which reminds me of one of my favorite gags that Jekyll put into his uh, into the Plastic Man series. There is a diner, and they don't they don't advertise, you know, like a greasy spoon kind of thing. They don't advertise mac and cheese. I think it's chili. You know, try our chili. And then next to the the next building, this is like a street scene. So there's the diner. You know, it's like Joe's Greasy Diner, whatever. The next to it, there's a doctor's office that's specializing in gastrointestinal <laughs> disorders. And then the next building over is a funeral parlor. <laughs> and, and you know, it's it, it's just such a great one. And it's a that's a background gag, you know. Mm-hmm. There's characters walking in the foreground talking about whatever the story is. 
But then he has this, this lineup of the one, two, three gag. And I tried to put a gag similar to that. Mine isn't quite as brilliant as that, but I tried to put something similar in the background of a, of a plastic man page. So I'll leave it to you guys to find it. Yeah. <laughs> I have been enjoying some of those backgrounds as I've been reading the plastic man, but you still, so you, I think you said a uh, woozy would be the better Mac and cheese maker. Maybe. Well, I don't know about maker. He's a better eater. He's a better. Uh, eater. <laughs> that's my answer. Yeah. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> as we were wrapping up, I just wanted to ask, is there, Anything that you are working on now or that you are would like to promote on our show that you would like to tell our fans about or anybody that you are doing, working on, or is going to be released soon? Well, you know, uh, I mean, I, I haven't been doing a lot of comics uh, for publishers recently, but I, last year I did a story for this Marvel anthology that Alex Ross curated. I think that's what they, the term they use. That was fun to kind of go back and do something with Marvel and do a humor story. And that's being collected now. It came out, you know, from last year into this year, maybe. I, I think it was delayed last year, and then they started releasing the six issues earlier this year. Anyway, they're doing a collection, which is oversized. And I got at least, I don't have a copy yet, but I saw one. It really is a beautiful format. It's like as big as the artwork kind of giant book. Very nice and soft cover. And it seemed like it was only 20 bucks or something. It's a good deal. But uh, on my own, I just do my work. Most of my work is available on the internet now. I post stuff all the time. I do a Screwy screwy Tuesdays. You were joking about that Mm -hmm. earlier. And I I do a Screwy Tuesday drawing or two every week. And I've got a Patreon page. I've got a website, HillaryBarton.com. And I I put my stuff up there. And, you know, I'm all over social media. I'm working on stuff. I have all these comics that I'm doing just for me. And it's, it's... I'm not always the best ramrod to get the thing going because I'm doing it for myself for fun. But I have a number of comics that are going. They're either all waiting for a guy to color them or waiting for someone to letter them. Everything's sort of in different stages. I just drew a story called Pretty Conan, and all the lyrics are from Sun Ra, the the jazz musician. And that's going to be one of the weirder things I've done in recent years. I want to encourage everybody to go out and to pick up your stuff and to look at it because I, I know I've been following your Screwy Tuesday and I think that it's you've got some wacky, wacky stuff. I've been enjoying looking at your older work with uh, Plastic Man and we are huge fans of the work that you used to do with John with John Bogdanov. So I, I think that it's been fantastic and really, really have appreciated you spending the time with us and talking about it. So thank you. If I can quote John just for just a real quick second to you when he was uh, asking like his questions and kind of talking about some stuff. One of the things that he said, uh, Hillary is a seriously underappreciated talent who, about whom the world needs to hear more. Anything we can do to push your mes- message oh. forward is uh, we are flattered and honored to be able to do that. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thank, thank you both. And I, you know, John is the sweetest guy in the world. I don't know what to say. I, uh, I'm humbled, and uh, it was a wonderful time in my life working on, pla- uh, working on Placer. That was wonderful, too, but working on Power Pack. <laughs> all, these, all these P comics there. Yeah. Power Pack and Plastic. Anyway. A- alliteration, alliteration, man. <laughs> uh, power Pack was great. I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm, it's great that you guys are doing this. I'm keeping this book alive for people and, and uh, you know, devoting so much time to it. It's, it's, it's uh, flattering. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing some of your yeah, history with us. And I got to return, you know, what John said was very flattering, but the same could be said about John and Louise, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the two of them, you know, when you work on a book that's a labor of love, but isn't the best-selling comic, 
you, everybody working on that book knew that, well, if we went over and did an expo, you know, we'd be making royalties up the wazoo. But they loved what they were doing. And they, it shows in every issue and every page, really. I was happy to be along for the ride. Say thanks again. I, I appreciate it. Carl was talking about that, though, saying how, like, Everybody at the desk loved Power Pack. And, but he was also talking about how, like, you know, it's like, but there was that X desk and you knew you, you know, it's like sometimes he'd lose talent over there because. I'm, I'm still friends with uh, Sarah uh, Tuchinsky, uh, who was the assistant editor, I think, during at least part of that run. Mm-hmm. She was Carl's assistant. And, you know, it's like, you're just, you know, chatting on the internet the other day. That's like, yeah, you just make friends in this business when you're working on stuff you love together, you know? That's so great. Uh, being able to maintain, gain a friendship and maintain it for any kind of length of time, because it, it's easy, you know, it's just in my own life. I've seen how, you know, friendships have waxed and waned. And then I've got some that have, you know, lasted since, you know, I got a buddy of mine since first grade that I still do stuff with. So it's interesting to see how relationships form and develop. Well, they do wax and wane. And as I alluded to before, that's part of the thing is I go from one project to another and I'm working with someone else. And so you start, you know, <laughs> You, you, you might you might be not be talking to the, the person you were working with last as, as much during that time. Uh, but anyway, we, we you were you're already saying goodbye. Let's let's end it up. I could, yeah, we gotta let you get some sleep here. Shout out time. We like to recognize those listeners who take the time to write in or leave us a review. And this is for episode eighty six, where we covered two 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 comics, New Mutants number forty nine and X Factor Annual number one. Al Sedano and Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Chad Michael Simon. Charles Gears. Clinton Robinson and his podcast, Fan Film Fridays and Coffee and Comics. Jeremy Daw. Matthew Fenner. Max Reads Comics. Sailor Bear Zodar. Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. Sebastian. Waffles. From Waffles and Mario Talk About Things. Who says, Shatterstar is a member of Power Pack. No. No, he's not. You need to listen again. We need to thank our Patreon supporters. Adorably astonishing and amazing, Andrew Burns. Cheerfully cheeky and charming, Char Logan. Challenging, cheesy, and chuckling, Charles Gears. Destructive and devastatingly delightful, Damian Witter. Dynamically dangerous and devious, Doug Jones. Exciting, energetic, and entertaining, Edward Verrucci. Jesting, joking, and jovial, Jeff Pollier. Just jealous and jeweled, Jeremy Daw. Muscly, mighty, and meticulous, Matthew Birdsey. Mythical and magnificent, monologuing, Matthew Laserwitz. Rudely rhyming and running, Rustin Fritcher. Steely, salty, and steamy, Sailor Bear Zodar. Sad and sickeningly silly, Shag Matthews. Strange and stirringly steady, Stephen Gray. Tyrannically terrifying and tame, Tim Price. Technically terrific and triumphant, Toddy Knock. Weird and wonderfully wacky, Wind. Be sure to check out the other shows that we are on. Our junior agent submissions on the MI6 Rogue Agents episode of On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. And monthly Monday movie muck about my most awesome movie show, which is on the Longbox Crusade Network. And we have some merchandise available on Redbubble. Go to redbubble.com and search for... Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Jeff and Mark Present is a bi-weekly self-produced podcast recorded in front of a live studio audience of a bunch of paper. If you would like to interact with us through the magic of the internet, you can do so through Twitter at Jeff and Mark Present, our Facebook page, Jeff and Mark Present, our email address, Jeff and Mark Present, all one word at gmail.com, or at our website, Jeff and Mark Present.wordpress.com. Also, our YouTube channel is at Jeff and Mark Present. And if you would like to help support our show, we are on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com, Jeff and Rick present. 
all one word. We are also a proud supporter of the Hero Initiative, and we will be donating 10% of our Patreon donations to this great cause. We encourage everyone to give what they can to this worthwhile organization that helps the creators who provide us with such great content. Go to HeroInitiative.org to find out more. Please rate and review us wherever you can, tell your friends about us, and share your love for us on social media. And as always, we want to thank the powerful people in our packs. My wife Cindy and our daughter Carrie. My fiance Hillary and our daughter Aurora. And my dear friend Lisanne, who knows where she is, and she'll be joining me soon. We, do we love, love you. you. Until next time. Costumes off! Our theme music is 80s action by Kevin McLeod at thecopsick.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. No, people want to hear it. <laughs> hardcore uh uh well i'm looking for page uh, 13 off yeah, of issue 58 so, so how um, much is that? Uh, let's, do, let's do some training now nah, yeah that's good content right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody you know that's why there's so many uh, popular shows about people shopping on amazon or doing ebay purchases it's called pawn stores that's what we got here oh, oh my gosh you're right or uh yeah the uh, i'm sure there were people that actually love to hear us negotiate on a page or something that would probably uh, probably entertain people but yeah no, yeah, we'll do yeah, it later. Yeah, okay. we'll go later. It, on it. <laughs> it, it would be kind of that. It's kind of like what we're doing is getting that behind the you know behind the facade view of the what well, we know this comic and there's names on it. But it was like, well, what was it like? And how did you do this? And how did you get together? And what's this? And what's the dirty scoop on people? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> oh, there's no dirty scoops. There's no dirty. Uh, by the way, by the way, Carrie, you have the cutest headset about everybody here. I got to say. Not even close with the guys. <laughs> this is very true. And it blinks. Oh, it flashes. Nice. Uh, I, I, I don't recall if he did. So what, did he, uh, what did he tell you guys? Uh, it, it's very Dickensian is what <laughs> his son had called it because it's like, yeah, there's like no electricity and just winds blowing through the walls. And, you know, they're just, I think, about to get broadband internet and stuff. So it was just like. <laughs> <laughs> big rambling house but kind of just like wow just cold and no power <laughs> well as long as there weren't like pickpockets living in the basement i mean i don't know yeah. all of them named pip 